welcome to Marvel's Voices. I'm your host, Angelique Rocher. Today on the podcast, I'm talking to a true multi-hyphenate renaissance woman, Mahale Mashigo. She's a South African musician, a writer of novels and comic books, and is a narrative director for a South African video game company. She literally does all the things. At Marvel, she contributed to a story last year in the United States of Captain America, number two, as well as she's written for Marvel's Voices Legacy. So I love her work, and most recently, she's written a series of Moon Girl team-ups, Miles Morales and Moon Girl, Avengers and Moon Girl, and X-Men and Moon Girl, starring one of our favorite X-Men, Logan, a.k.a. Wolverine. Now, X-Men and Moon Girl came out earlier this month, and I actually got to talk to Mahale the very day it was released. Oh, my God. Mahale. <laughs> Hello. <laughs> you had a book come out today. Yes, Moon Girl and X-Men, because, you know, Devil Dinosaur's missing, and this is the final book in this trilogy, so I'm super excited about this one. What they can't see is me and my pouty face at the thought that Devil Dinosaur is missing. He is our buddy, our pal. As soon as we came up with this idea that Devil Dinosaur is going to be missing, I was like, what is Lanella going to do by herself? And then she teams up with friends. You know, she teams up with Miles. <laughs> teams up with Captain Marvel. Oh, I love it. Also, I truly feel at the end of the day, although Devil Dinosaur, because of his size, gets Lunella in trouble, I feel like that's her barometer. That's actually what keeps her out of trouble. You know, I would like to say that without DD, she would not get into trouble, but that's a lie. Lunella is, <laughs> is my kind of misbehaving. I love that kind of misbehaving. <laughs> oh, okay. We're going to put a flag in Lunella for a second. And I want to kind of take a step back. I have to admit, I'm so excited to have you on the show because you were actually one of the inspirations for this season. Really? With your work that originally came out in Marvel's Voices, the decompression story, which we're going to talk about in a little bit. Mm -hmm. It was one of my favorite stories from Marvel's Voices Legacy. But when I read your first story, I was like, all right. I want to know everything about this person, <laughs> who is this person, and thoroughly excited about having you on board and in the Marvel Universe. And I'm so curious, what did growing up look like? Like, did you know you wanted to be an artist? I love telling stories. I always like to tell people I'm a storyteller before everything else. And I didn't know that I'd be able to do this with my life, right? So I grew up in a home with no books. And I taught myself how to read using magazines that my dad would bring home because I was like, okay, I will devour anything anyone puts in front of me. And when I got to school, I saw the library and I was like, what do you mean? I can just take books out. Like I can take them home. And I used to take out the maximum amount of books. I was a real bookworm. And I always found that I found I was a spectator in literature and not really somebody in books. And I think when I got to high school, I started writing fan fiction before we had a name for it. Um, I wrote Sweet Valley High fan fiction. <laughs> yes, Sweet Valley High fan fiction. I, I just want to backtrack. So you grew up in a home with no books. You devour these magazines. What kind of magazines are they? I always love to see the inspirations that people have because they embed on us, even at a young age, right? It's like 
just a regular magazine, like a boring stuff in there for adults. But in the back, they used to have these like stories, comic books, except it was photos, right? And it was always about nurses and doctors and, you know, the speech bubbles would be written in whatever language. And so I taught myself to read Sisoto and Isizulu long before I went to school and learned English. And it was always scandalous. The doctors and the nurses were always up to some kind of love triangle. And so this was my Grey's Anatomy, actually. And so I was really interested in how people tell stories. And my mom's the storyteller of the family. So I feel like I was meant to do this, even though as a kid, I just thought everyone tells stories. I love that because, you know, particularly people of color, we grow up with this concept of oral history that's kind of passed on. And whether that's our folklore or, you know, it's something that is thousands and thousands of years old in tradition. So talk to me about mom, the storyteller. So my mom, every night before bed, used to tell us uh, stories and It was always stories about animals, you know, how the hare outsmarted the lion. There was even once one about the hare eating the lion's kids. So this was really wild as well. (laughs) It was always wild stories. And I just, I remember before bedtime, this is something that we did all the time. But even if we're in the car and she sees, you know, somebody's knocked down traffic lights, she'll quickly say, can you imagine if traffic lights started protesting because they're tired of being hit by cars? So she's just like, she tells all kinds of stories and then she'll tell the story and then just trail off. And it's like, okay, what happens with the traffic lights though? You know, so she's, she's always got a story in her mind. Oh, I love it. It feels like she was feeding your imagination, you know, so you get to high school, you start writing your own fan fiction. What type of books are calling to you, right? Like you grew up in South Africa. Yeah. in, In Soweto in South Africa. Yeah. So there is now a plethora of other things that, you know, we didn't grow up with that may have been available to you and vice versa. So what were the books that started calling to you? So I'd never really seen myself in literature until high school when our teacher introduced a book called Nervous Conditions by Tsitsi Damaremba. And it happens in Zimbabwe, which is neighboring country. And I was like, hold on, because my uncle is from Zimbabwe. So I was like, so you can write books about people you're related to? And I thought that was fascinating. And then The Color Purple, that when I read The Color Purple, I had a moment of, so you can write about women and you can write about all kinds of women, like badly behaved women, you know, women who have desires. And it was kind of a long process until I got to Zayk Simdar's Ways of Dying. And it was about South Africans. And suddenly I was like, that's it. That's my moment. I can write about people I'm related to. I can write about women who are badly behaved, well-behaved, and I can also write about me. Mm. And that's when I was like, okay, there's the sweet spot. And then I discovered Toni Morrison and it was over for me. I knew at that point I'm going to be a writer. I don't know how, but I'll keep writing. I think that's what a lot of people take for granted. And I think it's so powerful when we do see ourselves in stories. And so now I'm curious, when did comics and Marvel kind of first enter your world? So this is so funny because I started reading, my first introduction to comics was I was, I don't know, I must have been like 10 or 11, and I was reading Archie comics. I was reading (laughs) Wendy and all, and it was like all this very like sweet, inoffensive stuff. And my little brother, when he was starting to choose his own comics, he was like, 
hey, you know, like you can read a Batman comic. And I was like, no, Batman is on every Saturday on TV. I'm good. And then he was like, no. And he introduced me to comics across the board. And I was particularly drawn to Marvel comics because there was a magic there. There was definitely magic and also to see characters like Storm. I was like, what? This is a thing? I exist in comics? And that was a big deal. And I feel like even now at my big age, I'm still finding that, hey, we don't exist in some spaces, which is why my work with creating Nichelle Wright for the Cap books, I was oh, like... we are going to talk about Nichelle. She's one of my favorites. Exactly. And I was like, I love Nichelle. Why isn't there a Nichelle in the world? And so I feel like my work has become discovering things and looking for myself in it immediately. And if I don't see myself, I'm like, okay, I'm going to write that. I'm going to write myself into that world so that nobody, I can't imagine a little me born 10 years from now, who's going to be like, oh, I don't belong in literature. Oh, I don't belong in games. Oh, I don't belong in comic books, you know? So I'm, I'm actually doing it for me retrospectively, I guess. I love that. So talk to me about what is a day in the life of Mahale Mashigo look like? I don't know how you keep it straight. I don't know either, to be honest. I've never been able to work on one thing, which I think is my saving grace, right? (laughs) I can't work on one thing. So I can tell you, I wake up super early in the morning. And if I don't go to boxing, then I take my dog for a walk after boxing. And then that's when the day starts. And I have a chart and I look at which deadline is the one that's closest, the one that I can't afford to be messing around on, whether it's a comic or a TV script. And then I just basically do that. And then during the day, I go walk my dog or play fetch downstairs. And then I go back to work. So it's not terribly exciting. Well, for those who don't know, you're in a completely different continent right now talking to us. I am. I'm in Cape Town, South Africa. Because comics and storytelling is not limited to North America. And the creativity is not limited. Yeah, and I think that's what's so important. And I think this is why I love working on Moon Girl because I get Lunella. Like, we may not be from the same place in the world, but I get her. I actually, when I did the third book, I was kind of sad and I was like, no, I'm saying goodbye to my bestie. You know, and that's the thing about stories. They're everywhere in the world. And I love that at Marvel, I can collaborate with people from everywhere in the world. And we come together because we love these characters and we love these stories. Well, and Lunella is a perfect example, right? So Lunella's inspiration and one of the artists you've actually worked with, Natasha Bustos, is from Spain. So I kind of want to take a step back, though, because we talked about you don't like doing one project at a time. I'm always curious because everyone's process is different. How do you shift between these mediums? Because every part of them, it is storytelling. Yeah. But every structure is a little slightly different. I always like to think that there are different voices, right? And Mm. with comic books, one of the first things I need to do is imagine it. Like sit down and actually imagine what each and every moment is going to look like. Once I've got what the idea is, I kind of stretch it out and I say, okay, these are nice parts. Are you saying you storyboard in your head? Yeah, I have to. Like most of the stuff happens in my head before and I have a weird process. I storyboard in my head and then I use paper and pen and then I start typing. It's a tedious process, which is why one of my very good friends got me a remarkable because he's like, you don't need to do all that. (laughs) 
when he heard about the process, he's like, that is a long process. And I said to him, it's important. It starts in my mind and I see the pieces moving around and then I have to write it down and then type it. And he said, I'm sure we can merge those two. And he got me a remarkable. So I know that for comic books, that's where I start. And with writing for TV, I always imagine what the opening scene is. Mm. Once I've got the opening scene, everything else flows. And I say flow, meaning, you know, I'll take a chunk and I'll dump it and then go, that does not flow, that does not belong here. And then with novels, I basically take years and years and years. And then my agent says, okay, that's enough. We need to publish something. And then I say, oh, okay, I mean, I guess. And then I I write through the night. (laughs) So my novels are all written at night. (laughs) You heard it here first. That's the Night process. writing is the best writing. It is because my dog is sleeping. My neighbors are not making a noise. It's just quiet and I can hear myself think. Oh. All right. So one of the things I love that you kind of said is that you allow every type of storytelling to reside within the space that is most conducive, right? You don't try to force it into its whole, you know, yeah. so when you're first writing your first story, from Marvel, which I love. Marvel's Voices Legacy number one from 2021. Uh, there's this beautiful story called Decompression, and it stars Riri Williams and the Fast Four, formerly known as the Fast Five. But that's not the cool thing about the story. One of the greatest things about this story is that you took a chance to allow these teenage superheroes to be teenagers yeah talk to me a little bit about you know your first comic book writing work for marvel and how you approached it it was such a lovely thing because i was like oh all of these fight sequences and then i thought actually at the time i was grappling with the idea of community Mm. you know i have a very tight-knit group of friends and we all do amazing things fascinating things but once in a while we can send an sos And you literally, you go to the WhatsApp group and you send the SOS and you give the time and place and we show up. Like, we don't know why we're showing up, but we show up. And then we say, what's wrong? How can we help you? And if you need to rant, we'll be there ranting. We'll listen to your ranting and we'll curse the person who's upset you. If you need to celebrate, we'll get the bubbly and we will celebrate. And I really liked this idea of community that we use the SOS for sometimes decompressing. You know, and I kind of thought, who would she be with? And it was, I was like, it'll be so nice to have like a safe house where you all have a standing date and you go and hang out. And that's what I wanted. It was, there is a bigger emergency sometimes in your life than all of the crisis. Sometimes relaxing is the biggest emergency in your life and you deserve to treat it with the same urgency and the same kind of dedication that you do crises about bad guys robbing banks or whatever. Well, and there's a thing that you hit that is one of the things that I love about Marvel. And it was just this true Marvel moment in one of the panels. I think it's Kamala that falls asleep with the controller in her hand. And it's that moment where it's like, yeah, man, I've been there. Because that relatability is one of the reasons we love our characters so much. You know, do you feel like stepping into the world of comics, you were able to bring certain things that inspired you into this work and the important points that you wanted to bring out for the different characters you've worked with, like Riri, like Kamala, and, you know, like Lunella. I think 
every time I've stepped into comic book world, I really understand that superheroes are us imagining the best of ourselves, right? So whenever I step into the world of comic books, it's just like, I'll use Riri as an example. She knows that she's got a standing date with her friends, but she's like, let me just stop right here and stop this crime quickly. I know I'm running late. I will be there. And that sounds like the best version of ourselves where we're always willing to help, but we also help ourselves. And I think I kind of bring in this element of it's okay to decompress. It's okay to have a bad day. It's okay to miss your best friend. I mean, Lunella spends the first two books desperately missing Devil Dinosaur. And she goes on adventures that she wouldn't otherwise go on. She goes to the moon. She goes to Counter-Earth. And I just like stepping into the world of superheroes, knowing that that is the best version of ourselves. That is the best version of humanity for me. But I always want to make sure that we keep the humanity as well. Take a break, you know, have a tantrum, cry. That's all okay, because the best version of ourselves also includes being soft. You're one of the writers for Kweze, Mm -hmm. you know, a comic book series featuring the first modernized South African superhero. Yeah. And and the reason why I say that is because depending on where you're from, our heroes existed, right? We had deities that had superpowers. Yeah. Do you feel like there was an inspiration within your work on Kweze, but also like a background from you culturally and the stories you grew up with that influenced how you viewed modernized superheroes? Oh, yes, definitely. I mean, because I grew up, I always like to say my first experience with fantasy or speculative fiction was through my mother and those stories that she used to tell me at night before I went to bed. And I also like to think of myself as I'm a fantasy person. I love sci-fi. I love the whole nines big flick. And so it's something that's, you know, people sometimes talk about magic realism and I'm like, magic realism for who? What if that's a reality, you know? What if that's something we believe? And I think going from the stories I used to hear from my mom and the folklore and then jumping into comic books really wasn't that big of a jump. In fact, I feel like I was primed for this world of superheroes. And I don't like to separate the two because it is all stories and it's stories that mean something to me. And, you know, some people would be like, ooh, superheroes. And I'm like, shut your mouth because you don't actually realize how the magic of stories and the magic of people in stories, that is so real. It is so real to me. It's something that I grew up with. So it wasn't a huge jump. And, and, you know, some people will say, oh, it's for kids. And I'm like, and then what? I have an inner kid too. And I also have an inner person who loves magic. I mean, at some point in my life, I wanted to be a magician. So I love that this is not such a huge jump from what I grew up listening to from my mom. I'm sorry, you wanted to be a magician? I did. But I thought, oh God, now magicians are going to be mad at me. But I thought magic was real. Like you could actually pull You're like, all of this sleight of hand thing. I don't, I don't understand. <laughs> and as soon as, again, my little brother. And I was way too old to still believe that magic was real but my little brother was like no let me show you how dare you i still believe magic is real how dare you and and it was my little brother he was like no let me show you how they do that and then i was like okay well i guess i need to think of a new occupation i can't be a magician and now i make magic with words so it's not so bad exactly so magic is real it is 
just not the kind of magic that I wanted to make. I actually wanted to pull coins out of people's bodies. <laughs> I love it. So wait, so talk to me about Kwese. One, this is really important, right? Because folks in the United States take for granted that modernized comic books have been here since the 30s. It is so important, as you mentioned, seeing ourselves. Like, talk to me about this process and the importance of Kwese. And like for folks who might not be familiar, what does the first modernized South African superhero look like? So I'm just going to give a quick history lesson here. Whenever we do cons, people say, oh, Kwese is South Africa's first black superhero. And I always have to correct them because in the 70s, during apartheid, the propaganda department, I mean, imagine having a whole propaganda department. So it's a deeply segregated country. The minority is benefiting from everything. You know, they live in nice houses. There are even electricity towers in townships that basically produce electricity for the suburbs where the minority live. Um, tempers are flaring here, but this is in the early 70s before things kicked off when the students went and rioted on the 16th of June in 1976. And in the propaganda department, they wanted to come up with a comic, a comic about, quote unquote, a good native who is going to follow the rules. And they called him Mighty Man. Mighty Man's story is very typical. He was a cop. I think he, like, came in contact with some acid and then had superpowers. And Mighty Man is basically fighting crime within the native parts of the country. And in 1976, when the students across the country were tired of basically being taught in Afrikaans and not in their mother tongue, there was the beginnings of a revolution. And around that time, the kids were like, what use is a superhero like Mighty Man if he's not even going to fight to free us? You know, he's fighting petty crime. He's fighting people that don't have, you know, that, that are staying out late at night. And that was the end of Mighty Man. I mean, the kids basically vandalized all stands where this was sold. And then that was the end. They didn't roll out any more issues of Mighty Man. And whenever people say to us, Quizzy's the first black superhero, I'm like, maybe he's the first black superhero who's on the right side of history. <laughs> But he's not the first. And I'm also averse to this thing of firsts because it can be quite ahistorical. But working on Kwesi for me is amazing because he's a 19-year-old who discovers he's got superpowers. You know, he gets the superpower starter pack, super strength and flight and, and, and. And the first thing he does is he's not like, I'm going to go out and save people. He's like, how can I use this to become famous on like TikTok or Instagram? Like, how can I get followers? Because that's what a contemporary 19-year-old would do in South Africa. And this this comic is about him really learning how to be altruistic without losing his personality. And it's a wonderful story because we pull from all the different cultures. I mean, even the suits that they wear pull from, you know, the Kosa culture, uh, the Basutu culture. And we basically make sure that whenever you look at this, you can identify that hey, this is from South Africa. This has something to do with their heritage. And I really also want to make it clear to folks who who may not understand, how many languages are spoken in South Africa still? We have 11 official languages, and those are just the official ones. And then there's, I guess, what we would call dialects, and that's many as well. And it's just a very diverse place with many, many different, you know, ethnic groups. 
and it's such a lovely place to live and to be able to pull from all of those from all of those ethnic groups and the stories that we all have is what makes it so nice to be somebody who likes to write speculative fiction. I love it. Where does your family and where do you kind of fit in that? Because I feel like you honor everyone's culture so much, but like, where do you step in that and honor your own culture in that? So I grew up, I guess you could say I was an urban kid. I wasn't very close to, I guess, the source of my culture. And I grew up speaking the languages of everyone around me. And I guess that's why I'm so good because I'm, I'm a drifter, you know, and wait, how many languages do you speak? Seven. And those languages are? <laughs> I speak Sesotho. I speak Setswana. My Setswana is very poor. I speak Sibeli because my mom is Mubeli. I speak Isuzulu because that was one of my first languages. I speak English. I speak Afrikaans. What am I missing out? Oh, I also speak Setwana because when I moved to the Eastern Cape for university, I soon found that not a lot of people spoke Sesotho or Setswana or Sibeli. So I had to quickly learn Setwana. Okay, continue. Just, I... <laughs> I will say that it's because I'm an urban kid. And in urban areas, we didn't have the segregation of the different ethnic groups. And you put a bunch of people together from different ethnic groups, and they do begin to, to speak each other's languages. Now you, you're bringing all of these cultures, this beautiful conglomeration of cultures that you kind of grew up with. And you're also growing up in this wave of the the end of apartheid, right? Like you're yeah. growing up in this as well. And you've got all of these cultures that are coming from everywhere in the urban center. Do you feel like that had an impact on the stories you wanted to tell? And the stories and the music and the video games that you're now able to put out in the world? I think that definitely had an impact on me. And I think it is so difficult to describe what happened post-94 in South Africa. There was a certain hopefulness and a certain joy and music that was coming out. And people were just like, yes, we are free. And there was this, just this joyfulness. And I remember thinking, I want to capture this moment. The one thing I always say about South Africans is we're so bad at documenting our joy. You know, we're so bad at documenting the best of us. And so I think in my stories, I always include those people who haven't been documented. I mean, there is a part in decompression, a little bit in the back is like a picture of Brenda Fassi. And she's like, I think Time Magazine called her the Madonna of Soweto or something. Just an amazing pop star. She was an amazing pop star. And so I throw those little things in there, in the background, because I want to make sure that the stuff that we don't record, especially the joyous moments, the best of us, I want to know that it exists somewhere out there, that I did some of the cataloging, even if it was in fiction. And joy is so important, right? Yeah. And I think that is part of our revolutions. It is part of our movements. And I remember interviewing someone years ago, and I, and I, and I love this quote. It was writer and journalist Michael Denzel Smith. And he said, if there's no joy in your movement, then your movement's not for me. Yep, that's it. <laughs> and so you are now able to kind of bring that joy into your writing, into your work. I sense it all over Nichelle. I also sense that you are a Star Trek fan um, because her name <laughs> is Nichelle. I, and so I have to admit, I got a chance to, to preview the story of the United States of Captain America and Nichelle. And I remember being like, 
oh my God, she's such a badass. I was like, wait, she has no superpowers, but she's a superhero. What is happening? And so I kind of want to go back to this idea of you having this permission to write badass women who want to change the world. And I feel like you got to bring that forward in using everyday people being superheroes, which I feel is also like rooted in what we kind of just talked about and this joy of this movement that happened in South Africa yeah. and this idea of being free in this creation of Nichelle and her choosing, her choosing to fight yes. for what's right. So talk to me about Nichelle and this inspiration. And I, just to give some context for the listeners who might not have read the United States of Captain America yet, you know, Nichelle Wright is the Captain America of Harrisburg. And I mean, she's dope. She's a gymnast who walked away from athletics to become a local activist by day and a vigilante by night. I also got to say her style's on point. She's got love for hip hop. Like that being said, talk to me about her inspiration. She also could have done so much else with her life like but she decided to dedicate her life to social justice when the concept of michelle was first you know when i first heard this concept and they said she's an activist you know and all of these things started coming to mind because you know growing up in apartheid south africa and in seeing south africa become a democracy you grew up around a lot of activists people that were brilliant musicians people that were brilliant poets and chose the cause instead and I always used to think of those people as superheroes, you know, because they carried on despite the fear of like state sanctioned violence or, you know, the fear of being put out by family and friends who were afraid of being on the wrong side of the state. And I thought, okay, she needs to be able to leap and do whatever. And I think at the time I was super, super obsessed with Simone Biles. And I was like, that's right. I want her to be a gymnast. You know, I want her to be a gymnast so that her power is actually physical power. There's no, you know, strength serum. There's nothing. There's no suit. This is what she's going to do. And then I remember also thinking, what do I want her to look like? And I was just like, there's no way we're not going to reference Flojo here. Flojo, as in like Florence Griffith Joyner, track and field legend Flojo, right? Yeah. And so I mentioned that should be part of her outfit. And then you know, and as I was building this, I was building she's petite in stature because she's a gymnast. But also, I do want that Flojo shout out to come through. And I want her to be an activist because she doesn't just want to go around in the streets beating people up. She also is like, we're going to protest. We're going to make sure that there's change in laws. And so I started writing this woman and I was like, I'm so impressed with her. You know, there is a moment where I think it's Sam or Cap, who says, why don't you come with us after they break her out of jail? And she's like, actually, no, I have things to do. I'm not fighting aliens. I'm fighting for my community and I'll stay in my community. And of course, then she gets to find out that her community has got her back because she's working for them. And honestly, Nichelle Wright is one of my favorite, favorite characters. She's just, she's got the source. How did, before we get to Moon Girl and Devil Dinosaur, at the time you're a novelist, singer, songwriter, how did the relationship between Marvel, because I believe Marvel's voice is decompression, was your first Marvel story. Yes, how was. did how did that relationship come about? So the, and now I'm going to forget what the new name is, Serial. I think they call Realm now. They had a Black Panther 
story. And I don't remember how. And I started writing this. And I was really excited because I would get to write some scenes with Shuri and Queen Ramonda, who is from, you know, South Africa. So I threw in some South African references in there. I was just like, this is my moment. And I got to describe fight scenes. And let me tell you, I was terrible at it. I'm much better at it now. And that's how I started my relationship with Marvel. And then came Voices, Legacy One. And that's when I was like, oh, I want to work with Riri. And every time Marvel is like, do you want to work on something? I'm like, oh my goodness, yes, they still remember me. They still like me. (laughs) Yes, correct. Now, again, we've kind of talked a little bit about Moon Girl and Devil Dinosaur and your love for Lunella. Like, you've written these three Moon Girl team-ups, Miles Morales and Moon Girl, Avengers and Moon Girl, and X-Men and Moon Girl. And it makes me so happy that... It's not that you just get to write this one beautiful story about one character, but you also get to dive in into the lives and the happenings of other characters in the Marvel Universe. So, you know, I want to talk about how unique this is, right? Like, it's not just a Moon Girl and Devil Dinosaur series. It's a Moon Girl and Devil Dinosaur series that is comprised of one of Marvel's oldest tricks, which is these team up. So what does the process look like as you're writing the story and bringing these characters together? And were there particular characters that you really wanted to work with? I think this time, so it was already set up that it's going to be Miles, it's going to be the Avengers, and it was going to be X-Men. And then it was up to me to choose which Avengers, which X-Men. And of course, I was really excited about Miles because I've been itching to do something with Miles for such a long time. And I found that Lunella was going to sass him. She was just going to sass him to no end. And, you know, he's like, who is this kid? And she's like, don't kid me. Don't call me a kid. Let me help you. I mean, you're obviously struggling here. (laughs) And then she kind of ropes him into this search for devil dinosaur. And I liked this idea of it will start somewhere and then it'll take them to Wakanda and then it'll take them to the moon and then counter Earth. And all I knew was when X-Men time came, I wanted Logan because I could not imagine grumpy Logan with super high energy, I'm a genius, Lunella. I needed to know what that vibe would be like. And it was such a rare opportunity to, you know, have people from different places come through. And I mean, there were several times where it was like, oh, we need to check what X-Men office is doing. Let's go check what, you know, what the Avengers office is doing. Like, can we use this character? Can we not use this character? And I just like that. It is now canon that Lunella and Logan are like little friends. <laughs> and I love that. <laughs> I love that so much. I feel like Logan would, would love Lunella. Yeah, he's he's grumpy, but he's like, whoa, so high energy. And she's like, why are you so grumpy? What's your problem? <laughs> and so I, I love that team up. And, you know, it's a rare occasion to use some of your faves. And I'm so glad this happened with Moon Girl. So we know that Devil Dinosaur is lost and she's trying to find her bestie. And I love your love for Lunella. Like, I have been wanting Moon Girl for so long. I actually ran out and I screamed on the balcony. And of course, my best friend was here and she's like, what's happening? And all I could say was Moon Girl. That was it. That was my answer. Moon Girl. (laughs) 
and it has been the most fun, the most exciting, and I'm so proud of it. I get to say I wrote Moon Girl three times, and she teamed up with some really cool people. And I love all of that because if we don't relate to her specifically, we know someone that's Moon Girl. Yeah. That high energy, beautifully brilliant, I can take on the world mentality. For you, were there certain parts of Lunella's personality or story that you especially wanted to explore with this mini? I think for me, I've always got these quips. You know, if people are having a conversation, I'll say something and then people will laugh. And I'm like, no, seriously, that's what's happening in my head. And I wanted her to have these real moments of humor because I also love to inject humor in everything I do. And I think there's a moment where Captain Marvel shows up. It's in the middle of the night and she's trying to talk to Lunella and she basically says, don't you keep office hours? Like, I'm a child. What are you doing? The neighbors will see you. And I really liked that, that in as much as she accepts that she can save people, she's still like, I'm a child. Why don't you keep office hours? This is unacceptable. And I love those kinds of moments, you know, where she's just, she's being funny because I do think she's hilarious. And so I wanted to inject some of my humor in there. And when my friends read some of this, they're like, you would say that, wouldn't you? I'm like, maybe, you know, like when um, Captain Marvel is like, okay, well, we need to come up with a plan. And she's like, you're literally the adult. Like you do it and come back to me. I'm a child. I have school. I have things. I think it's abundantly clear you didn't have to do a lot of research. Like, you loved Moon Girl and had already been kind of reading her. Like, what was your first introduction to Moon Girl and, like, what drew you in? So this must have been right in the beginning, right? Like, right in the beginning of Moon Girl. And I'm one of those people, if I see something and I I really, really like it, I will be obsessed with it. So it was right from the beginning. And I was just like, I need Moon Girl in my life. Are you kidding? A little baby genius with a dinosaur. And so right from issue one, I, I I was with it. And so when I got Moon Girl, I was like, yes, I've been preparing for this moment. (laughs) I love it. I am so, so grateful for you for taking your time. And I encourage everybody to please pick up all of your comic work. Where can we find you next? Is there anything you can tell us that you've got coming up? I don't know. I should ask the Marvel folks to call me. I'm willing and ready. Let's do something exciting. (laughs) Well, right now I'm trying, I'm working on this video game and I've signed an NDA, so I can't talk about it. And I'm working on my next novel because I know my agent is going to listen to this and he's going to be like, you're asking for comic book work, but you haven't finished the novel. So that's what I'm doing. (laughs) Thank you so much. This has been an absolute pleasure. Thank you. I have to tell you, I'm such a huge fan. I think you're amazing and you're so important for the culture. And you're definitely one of my inspirations. Oh, okay. You're going to make me cry. This made my day. Thank you. Oh my gosh. Thanks again to Mahale for coming on the show. Like, uh, it was so much fun. I could have talked to her for another two or three hours, but it was very late in Soweto and very early here in New Orleans. You can read X-Men and Moon Girl 2022 number one right now, wherever you get your comic books. And... 
I have a very special treat for you today. Not one, but two Stormbreakers to introduce you to. First up is German artist Nick Klein, who's currently drawing Thor for Marvel. Hi, my name is Nick Klein, and I'm from Germany. I first got into comics. I read the usual stuff that was was around in Germany when I was small, which was Asterix and Mickey Mouse and Fix and Foxy. And later, uh, my family moved to Canada when I was about 12. My classmates introduced me to superhero comics. I started drawing like comics for fanzines here um, in Germany around when I was like 20. And then I went to art school as well, and I took a detour because I thought I was going to get into fine art. Classmates, again, brought me back into comics, and um, I started doing illustration comics. My friend Marco was working at Marvel at the time. My work ended up on the desks of some editors, and um, Bill Roseman at the time gave me a chance and gave me my first cover work. And then I did a full issue of Interiors, and then I kept going from there. Here we are. I think I decided to be an artist professionally pretty early on, which is my senior year in high school, because I um, I was really bad at everything else, <laughs> and um, I just I realized that I wanted to go to art school, um, so I applied to the only art school that was around in the East Coast of Canada and started my art school there. And then I mean, once you're in art school, you kind of made that decision already. How would I describe myself? Um, to keep it vague, it's a mix of a European and U.S. comic book style. In Europe, uh, people tell me my, my work looks very American. And in the early days of me working for U.S. publishers, I would get the same, except they would tell me my work is very European. So I think I, for some unconscious reason, I combine those two worlds. I just try to be a good storyteller. If anything, that is probably uh, the connecting dot between all of my books. Um, and my visual approach changes a lot depending on the book I'm working on as well. So it's, it's hard for me to you know, pin it down to like, you know, a couple of trademarks. I think the cultural influence on my work is obviously there, but it's more on a subconscious level, I would say. Um, as European, I have more access to more European comic books. And a lot of that stuff does not get translated to English. So... There's a different comic book scene in Europe, especially in France. It's considered more of an art. It's not so much of, of a pop and an entertainment status. It's more of, a, of an art status. There's a lot of commonalities between living in the Western world, whether it be Europe or overseas in North America. But there's also like subtle differences. And I'm sure those play into my, my work and my everyday life as well, because those are connected, obviously. But I think nowadays as a whole, due to the world growing smaller, those differences are getting smaller and smaller as well. I found out I was going to be part of the Stormbreaker program because um, Ricky Purden emailed me and asked me to be part of the class, which is awesome because if you look back at the alumni of Stormbreakers and what it used to be called before that, that's a, that's a pretty hefty lineup of talent people that was in there. So it's an honor to be uh, asked to be Stormbreaker. Also, it's a great opportunity to know that Marvel you know, it's very confident in you and wants to push you more. So it wasn't really a long, long thinking period of mine to, to decide. So, um, yeah. The Marvel work I look forward to most is just Thor, Thor and more Thor, because um, even before Stormbreakers, that was the book I was on. That's, that's the book I love, even before I was the artist of the book. <laughs> and we've got some really cool stuff coming up. So if it were up to me, I would just stay on this book forever. But... 
we'll see how that goes. But at least for the next, I hope it's the next long time, I'll be uh, working on Thor, which makes me happy. And I hope it makes the readers happy too. So the next issue of Thor is out this week. So make sure you are picking it up. This issue is guest drawn by Salvador La Roca, but Nick did the cover and it's amazing. Okay, last but not least this week, we have Martin Cocolo from Uruguay. Okay, my name is Martin Cocolo. I am born and raised in Uruguay in Colonia del Sacramento, which is the capital of Colonia, and Colonia would be the state. So I'm from Colonia del Sacramento, Colonia, Uruguay. I first got into comics, I mean, I've always loved drawing, like, since I was like, I don't know, like three or four years old. So I found this library that had a lot of comics there. And it just, it was like an immediate love for the medium itself. I love reading and I love drawing. So so I was like super, super young when I first got into comics. And I just kept at it, basically. I would not have the opportunity to follow many, many arcs and, and stories and stuff because my city is quite small and I wouldn't receive all issues so it would be like super hard to continue a series and, and fully get into them. Basically, I would read whatever I could find, whatever I could get my hands on. So yeah, that was it, basically. I always knew that I wanted to be an artist, to make a living out of art, but I wasn't necessarily sure about making it in comics specifically. I went through many stages in my art and I don't know, I would play AD&D, for example. So for a time I, I got like really into fantasy drawing and, and illustration and stuff like that. But then over time I, I met a comic artist and I got into helping him and, and I eventually realized that I really enjoyed uh, making comics and, and I could take it seriously as a career. So I started applying all that knowledge into visual storytelling and, and comic production. When I got to a point in which I decided that I, I wasn't that green, I decided to start sending samples here and there and eventually ended up here, <laughs> basically. It's really, really hard to describe my own style. I aim to make it cinematic. I, I've seen many people describe it that way. I try to make it as dynamic and action-packed as possible. Growing up in Uruguay, especially in Colonia, Colonia is only uh, 40 minutes away from, from Argentina, crossing the river. So when I grew up here, all the TV, the signals were much powerful coming from Argentina than the signals in, in your own country. So I would actually watch all Argentinian programming 
And I learned a lot from that. And I keep learning about it. When you live in a, in a small country and you are next to the border of a much bigger country, you will incorporate stuff from the bigger country because it just, it, it embraces you. It permeates your, your experience and, and your identity in a way. I, I was asked by the talent coordinator at Marble if I would be willing to, to participate in the, in the initiative. And I said, yeah, of course. Uh, I mean, I, I would love to do it. I, I love working at Marble. I've been loving my, my whole experience, so it made a lot of sense for me to make that move and become a, a stormbreaker. So it means a lot to me because, like I said, growing up, I would think that the artists, the professional comic artists, they were like, like semi-gods. <laughs> they, they were inhuman. It, it was impossible for me to fathom the idea of being a published artist. So... Over time, it starts to get normal, and it's your everyday job, and, and, and that's it. But I, I always try to keep, like, as a small part in my brain, the optics of me when I was a kid, and admiring those artists and dreaming about becoming an artist myself, and I made it. I was able to achieve that goal, and, and I have many goals ahead of me, and I, I am extremely excited about it. So, yeah, being a, a Stormbreaker is it's amazing for me. It's a, it's a dream come true. And I just want more people to, to know me and know what I do. And if they like it, they're welcome to keep reading the stuff I do. And hopefully they have a great time doing it. The world needs happier people, basically. I get to live doing what I do. And people uh, get to enjoy it and, and make their lives uh, at least a little better, so yeah, <laughs> we're happy basically. Martin's latest cover can be found on X-Men number 15 out this week. Plus, he's drawing your favorite Merc with a Mouth, Deadpool, which will be written by the one and only and former Marvel's Voices guest, Alyssa Wong. And it comes out in November, so make sure that's on your pull list. Next week on Marvel's Voices, we have a huge guest, someone who has never appeared on a podcast before, creator Peach Momoko. Marvel's Voices is produced by Isabel Robertson, Cara McGurk-Allison, and me, Angelique Rocher. Our Senior Manager of Audio Production and Development is Brad Barton. Our Production Manager is Larissa Rosen. And our Executive Producer is Jill Duvall. Our theme music was composed and performed by Kamal Wainaina.